Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. All right. Well, for some of you guys I haven't spoken to you for some weeks, that's because uh, Jenny and I had another baby. Which is fun. Yep, we have Rosalia, Rosalia Edith. She's, I think, five weeks. We're five weeks in with her now, so we're adjusting. Mom and baby did well and are doing well. And so you can continue to keep us in our prayers, especially if you who know what three children are like. We're transitioning into a three children family and being outnumbered, which is fun. All right? So we're going to be speaking on communion today um, about. Maybe five or six weeks, I spoke on the blood and body of Jesus, and I actually did a, a, a word study before I spoke in that message and specifically looked up the scriptures in the New Testament um, just on the word blood that was tied to, you know, the, the sacrifice of Jesus' blood for us. And I think pulled up maybe like 40 or 50 different scriptures in the New Testament that talked on it. We spoke here about what that means for us, the different things that it purchased for us, that his blood still purchases for us, the access that it gives us uh, to the throne of God. Um, We talked about how the old system was ended in that moment of Jesus' death and resurrection. In that period of time, the old covenant was fulfilled and the new covenant began, which is why at the Last Supper he says, this is my blood, my new covenant. And then they would come to obviously know that. Um, he also, we also would realize that the Lord no longer wanted or desired the sacrifice of the blood of bulls or goats or, or animals, but he was looking for the sacrifice of the heart. And he could do that legally because Jesus fulfilled the law. Uh, he didn't abolish it, but he fulfilled it. And in that moment, everything changed for the, the new covenant and the New Testament church. And you are a part of the New Covenant and the New Testament church. And I want to talk on a few things, but I want to read two portions right off the bat. So if you could turn with me to Luke 22, verses 14 to 22, we're going to read. I'll give you a minute to get there as I'm turning there myself. I'm reading in the New King James. And today's going to be more uh, of teaching. It's going to be more classroom. I'm going to tell you some stories. I'm going to tell you some history. I'm actually going to do a lot more history with you guys than I did in the first service because um, we have more time. So just I can. So if you were coming for preaching, uh, sorry to disappoint, you're getting a teaching today. But I do want to encourage you to take notes. Um, for me, in the last two years, I have been approaching the scriptures with a different lens and a different um, desire. One being, I want to actually understand what I'm reading. So I've on purpose not just read through things that I don't understand and then move on. I have stopped, gotten out a Bible commentary. Um, if you don't have a Bible t- commentary, there's dozens on the internet that you can find for free. Um, they're in your Bible apps. And I've just started reading and asking questions. The other thing I've been doing is asking myself the question, why is it that I 
believe what I believe. I know I was taught it, I know it to be true, but I want to be able to articulate that myself. I don't want it to just be, you know, well, I say this is a truth of Christianity and my belief, but I don't have any knowledge behind the fact that I just heard it taught to me and I'm not able to articulate it myself. And so for the past two years, I've been really uh, not laying a new foundation, but going through the foundation of Christianity and of my life and being able to educate myself using resources so that I could communicate to myself and to others around me why I believe what I believe and what it says in scripture and what the early church and the history of churches believe, what culture might be uh, telling us today that might be in line or out of line with what we believe. It also helps when culture comes and challenges us, which if anyone has been alive and breathing and is a Christian today in the last years, we are, at least in the Western world, being more and more challenged by our faith in the face of culture. And so it's really helped me to lay a foundation, but also to understand from my own heart why I believe something. And in turn, it's produced greater connection to the Lord, where I can actually approach a subject that's been hard or deep or, or confusing, and I've been able to find him in the subject by doing the work and doing the research. And this is important to me. Uh, I did a, a five-week series on the apostolic over the course of a few months. Um, and you've heard me say that I believe that every single believer is meant to not just be equipped, but to be sent out. Part of our job as leaders in the church and part of your job as leaders in your sphere of influence is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I've found that practically to look like you guys or the, the, the congregation when equipped and the leadership is equipping rightly and setting things up rightly, you guys should see and do more of the stuff than we will ever see and do. Meaning our ceilings should be your floor and you should be getting activated to do the stuff. And part of that is gaining understanding and gaining wisdom. And I've asked this question the last two months I've been going through, why communion? What does it actually mean? So let's read and let's dive in, okay? Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke the bread and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Okay, we'll leave it there. All right, well, let's read the uncomfortable part too. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Um, which is a whole message in and of itself that Jesus discipled someone who he knew would betray him and treated him no different than anyone else. Um, which is definitely a lens we should look at in our lives. So we're going to dive into this. We're going to read one more. So turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Uh, I also want to read Paul's account. Now Paul obviously wasn't 
there with them. He probably was alive, most definitely was alive, but he wasn't part of the crew yet. He was still part of the crew killing Christians. Um, but Paul then obviously has an, his encounter, and the Lord speaks to him. He's getting firsthand accounts from the eyewitnesses, from this crew that was there. And then he, he gives us this account in Corinthians, verse 11, verse 23. And you guys are probably very familiar with this as well. We're going to go to verse 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread. Now, now he's teaching here. He's, not, he's no longer quoting what was happening. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we're going to dive into this subject, but I want to tell you this, this was the question that I was asking. Why, why communion? What does it mean? Um, and I think the most honest answer and probably the first answer that most people give, which is not totally a wrong answer, but it's not a complete answer, is we do it because Jesus told us to do it or the Bible tells us to do it, which is fine. It's not wrong, but it's not complete. Uh, and this, this is important because it can Im imply that there's no other reason to do it. Um, and another, another way that some of the church does it, and maybe not as much in our stream, but a lot of the church may approach this table and take communion because they're trying to earn God's favor, which is also another reason why we would not approach this. We don't, we don't approach the communion table because we're trying to earn something from God. The whole point is that we're receiving of unearned grace in this moment of communion. It's actually a table that the Lord sets for us where we are receiving from him. It has nothing to do with anything we could earn from him. And so why then? For me, and this is what I, I've wrote, because this meal begins to make sense of the rest of the world. It begins to make sense of Jesus. It begins to make sense of the Holy Spirit. It begins to make sense of our human nature. And it begins to make sense of the creator and the redeemer, God, who did this work in his son. And so this, this meal allows us to partake of the sacrifice of Jesus. And not just partake in the fact that we're eating and drinking bread or juice, but it's this reality where he says in John 6, if you don't eat my flesh, if you don't drink my blood, then you can have no part of me. And the good news is he opens a way for us to have a part with him, for us to abide in him and him to abide in us. And so this is much deeper than just a routine that we do. We don't just do it because we're told to do it. We do it because there is power and there is things happening when we take communion, both in the natural and in, in the spirit realm. And so we're gonna go through this. What helped me was thinking of it maybe in a more practical sense. Uh, with, with a, a nice little story here. All of us here have gone to a birthday party, at least your own, right? Uh, or someone else's, maybe you never had one, and we'll talk about inner healing later. Um, <laughs> but we've all been to a birthday party. 
But have you ever actually sat down and asked questions about what we do at birthday parties? Now, we probably all have different traditions, but at least from the culture in America, there are some similarities that we all experience. Most of us have gone to a party, and especially if we were a kid, and there's like the birthday hats, like the little pointy things. Like, why, why are we wearing hats to celebrate a birthday? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just to make the day a little bit more special. Why do we decorate the house? on a birthday. Why, why do we give people gifts on their birthday? Why do we, why do we put candles on, and why do we blow candles out, and why, why is the candles on a cake? Like, why is it the candles on, like, the meal on, on a steak? You know, it's like, <laughs> like, but these are the questions, like, why, why do we do this? And you can Google it later. I, I chose not to Google and see, like, the history of that. But when looking at a birthday, I, we, and we have to realize that all human societies throughout history have established a way of saying something by doing something via symbolic act. And so at, at our birthday or at anyone's birthday party, we're, we're saying at least two things. We're saying we're very happy you were born because they weren't born that day. So what's anything special about that day? It's like, you know, it's like, no, you're born 10 years ago. You're born 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, they're not born that day. But we are we're basically saying we are happy that you were born. We're celebrating your life. And we know you weren't born today, but we're looking back to the moment of your birth. We're also happy that today is the day that is your birthday. And for many of us, after we sing happy birthday, we might say this little song phrase, and many more, you know? And it's this wishful thing that we're, we're basically saying, I, I hope you have many more of these days to celebrate the day that you were born. And so in this picture of the birthday, there's a, it's almost like a symbolic act that we may not even realize that we're doing, where we are in the present moment celebrating something that happened years ago, but looking ahead to the future in one moment. And so we're bringing together these events, and somehow in this birthday meal, and it's a meal because we're eating cake, there's past, present, and future being held together. Now I want to tell another story. We could pick any year, but let's just pick, I don't know, 200 years before Christ, right? We are obviously still anticipating, the Jewish people are still anticipating looking for a Messiah, and they are once a year celebrating something called the Pesach, or Passover, right? And for those of you who may not know too much about the Passover meal, maybe even today or in the scripture, um, especially in that day, in Jewish communities, you would have the hustle and bustle going on in the streets because people are out in the market preparing for the Passover meal. There's specific things that they need, and there's parts of the meal that are very symbolic. We're not going to go through the whole thing today, but things like bitters that you would eat to, and things like, there's a whole, whole different thing that has meanings. And what happens after the meal is prepared, everyone's gathering to their family's houses. They're coming around a table, probably the, the grandfather or the father, the, one of the eldest men of the house would then open up to to the, the Torah, to the scriptures, and they would start to read slash sing, because they would kind of do it together, like read, sing the story of the Jewish people being enslaved in Egypt and how the Lord delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians, took them through the Red Sea into the wilderness and, and pointing to the promised land. And so they're, you know, doing this whole thing and there's this the table set and there's four different cups of wine. There's a lot of symbolism going on. And then one of the youngest 
uh, probably one of the youngest boys, but one of the youngest children would then kind of like in response, I'm sure a mother is there saying, say this, um, but they've maybe seen it enough to know it. And they would respond to the person, to the father or the grandfather, why is this day different than any other day? Why is this day special? And then the father or the, the man would reply, the singer replied, because today is the day that the Lord has delivered us out of the hand of the Egyptians, taken us through the Red Sea and is bringing us to the promised land. And so there was this understanding in Jewish culture that at the table of the Passover table, they knew that it wasn't the same night. And they knew that they weren't the exact same people. But in that moment, they were the Jewish people. And in that moment, they were partaking of that same night. And so in a present moment at a, a meal, they were looking back to something that took place years ago, similar to the birthday story that would happen, come through once every year. They would experience the present moment like we are delivered today, but they would also look forward to a coming Messiah, one who would come. And so there's this same reality in the Passover meal of present, past, and future being brought together in one moment. Now, let's jump to our story here. We find Jesus uh, coming into the last two weeks before his death and resurrection, and it's Passover time. That's why they were coming. That's why they were sharing this meal together, because they were doing what they had done with him four years in a row. This is the fourth year that they are now going to partake in the Passover meal with Jesus. So he sends them into the markets to go and prepare the meal, get the stuff that we need for the meal, and they would come together. Um, and the, the disciples already knew that this season was different. This Passover season was different. You know, Jesus was turning over tables. He was, like, turning over the money tables. He was, like, saying some crazy things. I mean, they just going through years of signs and wonders. Like, there's just something different. They're understanding and being taught about the kingdom of God. You know, and probably they're wondering and talking among themselves, like, you know what? You know, the, the Passover is a good time. And we're celebrating that we've been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. Maybe, maybe now he's going to announce that he's going to deliver us out of the, hand, the hands of the Roman Empire. And so there, there is expectation and anticipation. I'm sure nervousness on their part. I'm sure the Roman guards are nervous. I'm sure a lot of tension is building up in the city because tension has been building up. And then they would really know it's a different night because then they're at the Passover table and Jesus takes the bread and doesn't open up with the usual scriptures. And he begins a dialogue that is very different than what they would have dialogued during the normal Passover meal. And so in that moment, I'm sure the disciples had a whole host of questions that they could have been asking. But he takes the bread and he says a prayer. So he takes the bread, he, he thanks the Lord for it. He breaks the bread, and then he gives it to them to eat. And I think that's important to just keep in the back of our mind as we're going through the rest of this. So I want to give you a history lesson, but let's bring it to today. We, we still do this meal. 
It's known by many different names. You know, most of us here probably know it as communion or Holy Communion. And this reality that they got to experience, we, we still partake of today. It's still something that's part of our religious practice of our relationship with the Lord. And the point that I'm trying to make is just like they, in that moment, they probably didn't quite know what they were looking forward to, but they were looking ahead to his, his death and resurrection. We do it a little different. We're looking back to it. Now, they would have a meal, and we'll touch in a second, but we're, we're looking back to it. But we are still looking ahead to the king who's coming. And that's why I read that scripture in Corinthians, because then Paul takes the application of it. He says, Jesus said this, break, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to break all that down in a little bit. Then he says, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death and you proclaim his coming. And so there is this reality in this meal. And we're going to dive into the history and into some applications. And then we're going to partake together where we are doing even what they did in that day. We are remembering something. We are entering into a process, a family that we are a part of, just like the Jewish people in Passover knew that we were not the same Jews, but we, were part of the, we are part of that Jewish family. We may not be the same company that was at the table, but we are part of that family. And we are with them, with those in the hosts of heaven and here on earth today looking forward to a day when he will come back, okay? So let's give some history. And why some history? One of the things that I discovered when studying this is, and reading and knowing, the table of the Lord, communion is meant to be a place where we all come together. It's meant to bring people together just like the Passover meal did. It brought families together. But yet, in our history, in Christian history, it has become one of the things that has divided the church. In fact, it's been one of the things that actually helped influence uh, people being burned at the stake, and wars. If you look through the, the you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century, wars were fought because of this. Um, should they have been fought? Probably not, but we're not going to get into that today. So I want to just give you a couple things. I'm going to give you a history lesson. Welcome to history class, Bible history. Uh, it has a couple different names. You might recognize some of them. Simply, it was called breaking bread or or bread breaking, however you want to put that, uh, but both ways it was, it was said, and that was just out of the simplicity of Acts 2, 46, that they would come together and break bread, and Acts 20, verse 7, and it was more than just eating, there's times we see in, in the New Testament where it talks about that they came together to break bread and fellowship, but this bread breaking or breaking of bread was tied to Jesus and his death, that they would come together to do that type of bread breaking and breaking bread together. And then the name that probably most of us grew up with is Holy Communion. Um, also, some would have called it in that same vein, uh, sharing. Um, it's the English translation, sharing, of the Greek word koinonia, koinonia. And again, this is from Acts 2.46. It's also translated fellowship, and it's translated as communion. And remember, this is specifically regarding the meal tied to Jesus and his death. And why Holy Communion? Because the word holy means special or set apart for God. And so because there's other times where we have come together as an early church to share a meal, they wanted to, to recognize that this is the meal that's set apart. And so Holy Communion. Another way that you may have heard it is the thank you meal or Eucharist. Uh, 
the reason why this came to be is because Jesus said thank you to the Father when he broke the bread. And so the church would then say thank you to the Father for doing this work in his son for us. And so it's just this simple response of thank you from the Greek word eucharisto or eucharisteo that we find in Mark 14, verses 22 to 23. And actually, uh, the Eucharist is probably the most common worldwide uh, name for this meal that we share together. Obviously, predominantly in the Catholic Church, and most of us probably heard that word Eucharist, but it simply means thank you. And it's actually pretty beautiful that they're saying thank you to the Lord. There's another uh, cute name. It's called the Lord's Supper. And a simple story with that is Supper was actually a meal you would have in the morning, but in England, it was the name of the meal you had at night. So because this meal was had at night, they would call it the Last Supper, okay? Um, and then the last one, Mass, and I'll just read from the notes because this one's actually one of my favorites of the history of it. So this name came later on as Christianity reached Rome and when the meal became regularly celebrated in the Latin language. In the beginning, um, most of the early church would not have spoke Latin, they would have spoke Greek. But as the church began to shift to Latin, the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church began to shift to Latin, the meal would then be signaled by the person leading in Latin, and this is the English translation, at the end of the meal, they would say, go, you are sent out. And this actually is powerful, and we're gonna talk about how there is a go in the communion that Paul brings up. You see, the whole event and those who feed upon the death and the risen life of Christ, Jesus, are equipped to serve him in the world. And that Latin phrase where we get go, you are sent out is ite missa est. If you speak Latin, you can tell me how to say that correctly. But from there derived the word mass, and it is the meal that ends with the sending out and the commissioning. So as you can see, we have all different names for it, and they come from all different portions of Scripture where they're pulling the different names and different meanings. And there are some disagreements, and there are some things that we would kind of draw a line for, which we'll talk about today. But at the end of the day, there is this, this, this line of connection between the whole body of Christ, which was meant to be, one of the things that, that the table was meant to be, was a place where we would come together. Because the reality is, we are not the ones setting the table. The Lord is the one setting the table for us, even to this day. Um, we see, can I tell you a little bit more history? Because we have time. All right, I hope you're liking this. So basically, we, we see very soon after Jesus' resurrection, we read Paul's account. Paul probably comes around um, in the 50s, right? When he's writing Corinthians, it's in the 50s, like the year 50s. There's no 19 or in front of it. First century. <laughs> So it's in the 50s, right? Maybe 20 or 30 years after Christ's death. Um, you're like, 20 or 30 years? I thought it was the year zero. Well, we'll do that another day. So, but it wasn't. So anyway, the, the year is probably somewhere in the 50s. He's writing to the Corinthians, and that's where we get that account in 1 Corinthians about the communion table, about the death and the resurrection of Christ. And... One of these guys, I have his name somewhere. Um, I didn't write it down. That's okay. So, but in Paul's writings, he's highlighting, again, of the death and resurrection of Christ, and he's kind of laying the foundation for the early church, things that the early church from the very beginning would have been putting into practice, mean, meaning communion, which we still share today, is something that has been shared for over 2,000 years, which is 
kind of really cool to think about and kind of blows me away to think about. We are doing something that the church has been doing for centuries that Jesus himself established. And I know for us, right, maybe 21st century Christians, like, and being Protestant and not maybe Catholic or Greek Orthodox, like the, this world of tradition seems weird or different for us. We're not maybe used to us. But this is a tradition for us that is alive still and still has power. But it connects us with our family for all of history, way back to the days of Paul. But the action that he's proclaiming in that verse, we're proclaiming the death of the Lord until he comes, is basically saying by doing the communion, by partaking it, you are also saying it and proclaiming it. He was putting action to the word. And he, he was putting action to the meal. That it's not just something that we do to remember, but we're actually declaring something into the spirit realm. And we're going to talk about that. And so here's more history. For the next few hundred years on the early church, whether they call, excuse me, whether we call it communion, Eucharist, supper, mass, the Jesus meal, a lot of theories, a lot of doctrines came out of it. A lot of people would then put their own spin, their own understanding on it. And there was a guy named uh, Ignatius. He was from the early second century. He was also the bishop of Antioch. If you remember, Antioch is the first place where the believers were called Christians. We see that in the scripture. So he is one of the leaders of that, one of the churches that experienced massive revival and was established in culture. And so it was still happening that day. And he was one of the first developers of Paul's thought. And he referred to communion as the medicine of immorality. And around the same time, this book came out called the Didache, or the teaching, which would really establish much of uh, the Roman Catholic and the Catholic's world theology leading into the next hundreds of years. Now, people in that day didn't feel like slavishly tied to use the exact words that Jesus used in the Last Supper, but some within Rome, the Roman world saw the Jesus meal replacing their former pagan meals. And so these guys in the early church felt it necessary, like, let's teach what this is. Yes, in a way, it is replacing that meal because you shouldn't be doing those pagan meals, but it is different. It's not this thing where you're doing a blood sacrifice. We are entering into the sacrifice of Jesus. And so they did uh, establish some really cool things, um, but then some stuff came out of it. So some people would then go on to say that since it's a sacrifice, um, that then only certain people should be serving the meal. And that's where they established the priesthood. And the priests were the ones who would then serve the meal. And we wouldn't just break bread like they did in the time of the Corinthians, but that there actually would be office bearers, which the church would then call priests. The Catholic church would call priests. And the priests were the ones who were set apart, which they would wear sacrificial, still to this day, they wear sacrificial robes to prepare the elements of communion. And then if you've ever been, um, to a Catholic church, they'll put it on your tongue and you'll sip out of the same cup and do the wipe. And yeah, uh, I did it once and my mom was like cringing in her seat. I didn't know we weren't gonna go up. I was on the aisle seat and they were everywhere else. And so I just went up and looked back and none of my brothers are coming with me or my mom. I'm like, well, I'm going in. I'm drinking from the cup with these other 200 people and we're going in. So um, I did it, did it one time and it was fine. I lived. Um, but anyway, so... The point that I'm making is from, the, from that original, a lot of different theories came place. And we know this just from other biblical teaching. We know this from other uh, belief systems and other practices. And so for all sorts of reasons, 
after hundreds of years later, as people are looking at some of these early writers who maybe kind of adjusted or shifted or added things to, um, many people, at least in the Western world, came to see that some of the practices simply had to be adjusted and they wouldn't do. That it wasn't true to Jesus, it wasn't true to the early church and to the New Testament, and it actually led to the Reformation in the 16th century. These were one of the things that led to guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin in Europe, John Knox in Scotland, William Tyndale and Thomas Cramner in England. They came in and were insisting there, is, there has to be another way because what the church in itself is teaching us does not line up with what's going on in the scripture. At the same time, politically, um, you know, the church was very much involved in the government and the government very much involved in the church. There was not much separating it, um, you know, the priests and the popes at that time were getting extremely wealthy. Um, there was corruption. There's a lot of things going on. So there was a natural move to a reformation anyway. But this was one of those things that they insisted that there must be reform. Now, they didn't all, these reformers didn't all agree on everything. But there was a couple things that we'll mention today that there was general agreement on. And I'm gonna list eight for you today. One of the things was they felt the Bible must be read in one's own language. That we can't all go to church and listen to some guy teach in Latin and sing in Latin and then none of us speak Latin. So they felt like there has to be reform to the church. We need the scripture to be written in one's own language. Not just the Bible written, but worship too, being a particular central act to the church should be in one's own language. How many of you are grateful for that today? Um, they decided thirdly, that being a Christian was a matter of trusting God and not trying to earn his favor with good works. And this is, again, particularly tied to communion. As I mentioned before, part of the Catholic teaching, though it may not have been expressly written, but it was widely known that during the, that, by the time the 16th century came along, that if you wanted to earn God's favor, then you do that at communion. That's a way that you earn God's favor. And they were simply saying, no, that is not the right way. Um, that we can't earn his favor with good works. Four, God had already done everything we needed for salvation once and for all in Jesus, that we had justification by faith, and also addressing this fact that this was not a continual sacrifice of Christ because it had adapted to that the bread and the wine, it wasn't just a symbol, but it was literally transformed into the blood and body of Jesus when you were taking it and when the priests were blessing it. Uh, and so they were saying that is not truth. They said some other things like Christians don't go to purgatory after death. They're in the presence of the Lord. Six, that they didn't need endless masses for their souls. So this is again tied to mass, tied to communion, meaning there was this reality that if you wanted to go to heaven, you had to keep on applying this blood to guarantee your soul. And in fact, there was a practice of post uh, mortem mass, meaning if someone you weren't sure when they died, if they would go to heaven, you could go and take mass on their behalf as they're in purgatory with a hope that they would make it into heaven. So they're like, they're removing all of these doctrines um, in the Reformation. Uh, they were saying people, Christians in general, there are, is no levels of Christians. Like the priests are not greater than the servants, that all Christians are equal. And this, again, tied to communion. Only the priest was holy enough to actually touch the element. You couldn't touch it. You had to just receive it. Um, and eight, that 
the clergy, the leaders, they were just people with a particular job. Uh, we would probably ag naturally agree with all of this, but this was a revolution. This was a reformation. This was going against the grain. This was not popular. Most of these guys, half these guys that I listed were burned at the stake as they were writing these reformations to the scriptures and to the, the doctrines. That's why they needed assistance to go on to, to finish off the writing because they were killed. The, 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 the church, were, they were killing each other. They were killing the writers specifically because power was in the words. And then wars happened because of it. And so why am I sharing this? Because we don't approach, approach this table with that same knowledge in mind that this was something that wars were fought over. That people, like this changed society. It changed the church at large, but it changed entire countries. And this was actually something uh, that we should know and pay attention to so that when we approach this table, we do it with reverence. That this was something that similar, I don't want to say it's the same, but in the same way that when you go through the scripture, you see how the devil was trying to kill the seed of Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, the thing he kept doing over and over again was trying to kill the people who would give birth to Jesus down the line. And today, this thing called communion or Eucharist or whatever we call it, which is meant to bring us together to the blood and body of Jesus, which then his blood and body made a way for us to enter into the holy place and into eternity. This is the thing, one of the things that the enemy is trying to bring division in the church and not just division, but that uh, a casual approach that we don't know the power and the meaning of it. The reformers declared that you didn't need it, the communion to get out of purgatory, that it wasn't a good deed that you did or that the clergy did to earn God's favor. And it couldn't be a sacrifice because Jesus died once and for all. And to treat the bread and wine as literally Jesus's body and blood was idolatry. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. And they were calling people back to the simplicity of the early church and the gospel. Doesn't that sound like what is happening today? Like we are on the verge of a reformation. We are in the midst of it where we're going back to the, the basics of Christianity and we're beautifying again the basics. And that's part of what we're doing today. We're, this is a, a, a basic practice of Christianity that I'm trying to bring beauty out of so that we can enter into it with the beauty of Christ. So since that day with the reformers, when the... Uh, the common teaching of that day was that Jesus had to be crucified again in every mass. And the reformers were right to insist that Christianity adopts a straight line view of time as opposed to the circular view of time. Meaning this, that this practice, what the theologians were saying is, no, that, that we believe in a circular view of time. We're not repeating things, but we're moving forward in time. And this circular view, meaning they keep returning again to crucify him again, as if it's happening over and over again. He goes, no. That's actually not aligning with scripture. It was once and for all. He only needed to die once and for all. I mean, the scripture literally says it. So I'm not sure how they got there, but they did, they got there. And so meaning what God has done in Jesus is done for all time. Meaning it, in the moment of his death and resurrection, his blood being shed, it was done for that moment. It was done for all eternity past and it was done for all eternity future. That everyone before Jesus partakes through the blood and everyone 
after him partakes of the blood, that that blood covered all time, which is powerful. It's like, I don't know how it works. And so any suggestion that each of these Jesus meals is doing something fresh, meaning like it's happening again, or, or an action of our own, would, we would deem a wrong, a wrong teaching. And that communion, communion is not another sacrifice or part of a ceremonial sacrifice to gain God's favor. In fact, even when you look back on the Hebraic sacrifices that happened uh, throughout the scriptures, none of them were, were to gain God's favor. All of the sacrifice, even in, in the Old Testament, was to establish and maintain fellowship with God and his people. When you even look at the priestly sacrifice that they would go in once a year to sacrifice uh, the, the blood of a bull and goat for the fulfillment of the law, it didn't forgive sin. We know that all it did was postpone sin, but the whole point of that was so that for then for the next year, men could be in right relationship with God. They could still have access to the Lord. I mean, not in the same way as New Testament Christianity, but in this reality that it postponed and it covered. It was always meant to maintain fellowship with God and his people. And communion brings together the one sacrifice of Jesus with feast and thanksgiving. It is a meal. It is something that we partake of. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like a meal because we're ripping off a wrapper with a paper cracker and a juice. Like it doesn't feel like a meal, but like it was a meal. It was a time spent in conversation, in thanksgiving, in prayer. The thanksgiving is our appropriate gratitude for the unearned grace that we get through his blood and his body. And in particular, the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, it doesn't simply just mean remembering his death as in like we're gonna forget it, so we gotta keep doing this so that we keep remembering it, though, though we do that. But it's not simply recall the events of Calvary with our minds, hearts, in faith, and love and awe. It also means that Jesus is present in the moment that we're partaking of. To do this in remembrance of me is do this with me. And the Holy Communion, this meal, it points back to that one-time death which is made contemporary with us. And it points to our future. How? What Paul said, whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we partake, we declare he died and rose again. And every time we partake, we declared that he's coming again. In a way, it is spiritual warfare that we are speaking something into the atmosphere. We're, we're doing a prophetic act, a, symbol, a symbolic act that actually speaks something. Paul's saying that when you do this, he, does, he doesn't say, take it and then declare he died. He doesn't say, take it and then shout, he's coming again. But he said the actual action of eating the bread and drinking the wine, the action proclaims he died and the action proclaims he's coming. To who? To the whole world. Now think about how that happens. It's supposed to be like a Passover meal. Everything stops and the whole family comes together to partake of this prophetic and symbolic meal. It's supposed to be that the world knows us by the people who take communion, who partake of the blood and body of Jesus, and who know, yes, he did die, and he is coming. In this meal, we are assured that we are on the right road. 
and that the God who began a good work in us and now feeds us with his own life, the life of his own son, will bring that good work to completion when all things are made new and we stand at last in the presence of Jesus himself and enter into our own promised land. It's what gives us access. The beauty of it is it's not just giving you access when you die, but we also see in scripture that it says by his blood, we gain access to the holy place and that he's seated us in heavenly places with Christ who sits at the right hand of the father. That you have access to come boldly to the throne called what? Grace. And how did you get that grace? You earned it when you accepted him as Lord and Savior and you partake of his blood and his body. (laughs) He gave you grace. Remember that last message I spoke, I talked about almost 20 other things that came with that as well. And we, we can talk about healing. We can talk about deliverance. We can talk about so many different things, the renewing of the mind. We can talk about Ephesians 2, I think verse 6, where it says, we, when we were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, I like to think of that as it's the blood that we declare over our unsaved family members that they would be brought near. But it's also the blood that we, every time we do this, I'm reminded, oh, this is the blood that brings me near to Christ. Similar to what we were, were just saying before, that it, it is the thing that makes us remember he is present here in this moment with me. When we come to the table of the Lord, he is there with us. And we are there with him. Can I give you one more history lesson? Yeah? Some of you are smiling and some of you... Anyway, okay, so the year is 1529, the place is Marburg, Germany, and we have a meeting between this guy Luther and Zwingli, Uh, Martin Luther, and I don't remember Zwingli's first name, Uh, but these two guys were part of the reformers. Why did they meet together? Because they wanted to come to common ground. They They both had a common enemy, if you will the Catholic Church at the time, but they also didn't have complete agreement on their reform. And part of the thing that they were working out was on the communion, the Eucharist, the Mass, whatever we, you, know, you want to call it. Both agreed that the church of their day had it wrong with transubstantiation, which is the long word that means it literally becomes the blood and body of Jesus. In fact, they would teach how physical objects had outward physical manifestations and an inward substance, a reality deeper than that which you could touch and see. So while the bread still looked, tasted, and smelt and felt like bread, its, stumps, its substance, this mysterious inner, rea- inner reality, had changed so that it was actually Christ's body. So that's what they were teaching, the, tr- the transubstantiation, long word. Okay, so they both disagreed with that. Luther, however, um, he, he had leaned towards the idea that, okay, but maybe there is an inner substance. It's not literally Christ. Um, it's, we're not like literally eating his flesh, but that there was a substance where both the bread and him were present. And Zwingli said that the bread remained bread, and at best it could signify Christ's body, and it could be a signpost pointing towards it. So Zwingli was completely removing any presence of Jesus in the moment. It was just symbolic. And Luther was saying, no, it's, it's got to be more than symbolic. He has to be present in it. And then they 
couldn't agree and they left the meeting in disagreement. Then a little while later, there's this other guy. Um, he was friends with Zwingli and his name was Johannes. It's a long last name, but Johannes O. It's Okalampadius, however you pronounce that. Now this guy, Johannes, he knew more Hebrew and he knew more Aramaic than either Luther or Zwingli. And so this passage, which they were debating over, was written in Aramaic. And so the thing that Johannes wanted to point out, because Luther's argument was, I, we, can't, we can't do away with the fact that he's saying, Jesus is saying, this bread, this is my body, this is my blood. And so what Johannes pointed out, well, in the Aramaic, the, the word is, is not there. It's just this dash my body, this dash my blood. Now, even still to this day, theologians can't really come to the, to the point where they say, like, this is explicitly, explicitly what that means. There's still this wrestle of this is or this dash, and there is the, a, a, a good tension in that. But what we have come to understand from all of that and from where we stand today is that there is truth in what Luther was saying, and it's more than just symbolic. There is this reality that we see in Scripture that he is present with us. And that dash must mean a lot in the Aramaic, or, or we don't quite know. But it's not just a symbolic meal, but, but we also don't believe that it's literally uh, eating flesh and blood, okay? So that's kind of theology class. This is where we stand even as, as a church. And clearly, some deep connection is intended, but the point I'm making is there, there's no formula that's widely agreed upon, except for the fact that this is an experience that the whole church, the whole body gets to enter into, and that with it comes an encounter with him, an activation with him, and again. And why am I telling you all of this? Why are you telling me this, Rich? Because these guys, specifically Johannes, were the greatest influencers in England at the time. Guys like John Frith, William Tyndale's assistant, John Frith was Tyndale's assistant, wrote the first book in English on the Lord's Supper while still in prison waiting to die in 1533. And he used Johannes's work. And over the next 20 years, Thomas Cramner, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, did that same, used his work, which produced the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which is the, well, influenced many generations after that, uh, English-speaking generations that held on to these two things. On one hand, those who came to the faith, to came in faith to communion, really did feed on Christ in the sense that He's present. But on the other hand, the communion bread remained bread and did not need to undergo any change. Calvin, John Calvin, at the same time was working out a theory saying, "What is really taking place is happening in the heavenly realm, and we do not bring Jesus down to our table, but by the Spirit we are taken up into heaven, where Jesus reigns in majesty." And the real, real miracle, in Calvin's opinion in his view, is that we are taken into the very heart of heaven where Christ is at the right hand of God. And so you can see there's much discussion, there's much dialogue, but the point is there's depth. There's depth here. There's things to uh, enter into. And a lot of times we approach Scripture just simply to understand, but there's times where we don't just come to understand Scripture, but we want to experience it. And this act of communion is not just something we're called to understand, but it's we're called to experience. That's why we partake of it. It's why it's part of our regular practice and routine as a body and as a church. 
And so what happens when we bring all of this together? One, we have food in the present that acts as, a, as maybe a symbol or presence of Jesus that's pointing us to our future. This is the food over which Jesus said, my body, my blood, and that the spirit mysteriously is at work in the present to anticipate the life that we will enjoy in God's new world, meaning this, that this meal actually affects us and affects our future. It opens doors for us. It goes to battle for us because it's his blood and it's his body. And I've said this phrase here, um, that his blood still runs warm. I've said it in prayer, I've said it in teaching. And for me, what, what I've come to realize is that his blood is continually acting on my behalf. It's continually giving me access. It's continually extending me grace. It's continually working on my behalf, meaning uh, I didn't accept Jesus and then go on being perfect, but I, I go on and I at times stumble and I can return back to the blood that has already been applied on my life and say, okay, Lord, I messed up, but your blood still works for me and your body has still made a way. Uh, what we, you know, what I would teach my kids in the simplicity, and maybe I'll say it to you now, or I will say it to you now, you know, this communion table, his blood and his body gave us access to something that we didn't have access to before. In simplicity, his body being torn and why we break the cracker, why I like to break the cracker when we do it, it's a symbol of the veil that was torn. His body being torn is the symbol of the veil being torn that was the separation between us and that heavenly place and now gives us access. It's why the New Testament writers can say, and so we with unveiled faces, connecting it to Moses, right? Moses had to go before the presence with an unveiled face, but we not only can go through the veil, but we don't even have to veil our face. We can go face to face with God because of his blood and his body. Okay, John 6, we see the hard, the hard scriptures. And again, the, the thing I'm pointing out here is when we have these hard scriptures like John 6 where he says, you have to eat my body, you have to uh, drink my blood, because if you don't do it, then you can have no part of me. Like even in the 21st century, that is hard to read just as it was all those years ago. We have a lot of cultural difference, but there's still that, what does that mean? And I hope this teaching today has helped you understand a little bit of what that means. It's this reality of coming together with him. That by entering in through this practice that he has set up for us, we continually have access to abide in him as he abides in us. And we see in the account in Matthew and Luke that Jesus, again, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. If I can have the worship team come up, and if I can have someone help pass out the, the elements. This meal is of utmost importance, and it's not to be approached casually. The best demands the best. If you were to serve your guests fine wine, most of us wouldn't pour it into a solo cup. We would put it into a proper wine glass, or at least a wine glass, right? And we want to approach communion rightly, meaning there's a preparation. If I'm gonna go purchase fine wine and I don't have wine glasses, I'm probably also gonna go get a couple wine glasses. If it's Trader Joe's, three buck chuck, maybe you're pouring it into a solo cup. I don't know. Um, if it's like pizza, maybe we're eating on paper plates. 
but if we're having filet mignon, we might pull out the china. You, you kind of get what I'm saying? This meal was not just the normal breaking of bread, but this meal came to be a holy meal, a special meal, because it's how Jesus intended it and laid it out for us. Paul said that when we approach this meal, that we should examine oneself. Basically, we should not just come in casually. We should take a moment and we should say, Lord, if there be any way in me, anything that's not right, anything that I'm thinking that's opposite or different, any way that needs to be adjusted, I'm going to deal with that now before I even partake of this bread and this cup. He said that when you don't approach the table of the Lord rightly, that's why many are sick and dying among you. Meaning, uh, I like to go the other side around. When we approach light, when we approach the table of the Lord rightly, there is blessings that come from it. Blessings of health, blessings of healing of sickness, blessings of unity, blessings of, of revelation that comes. And when we take the bread and we take the wine, we should give thanks. We should ask the Lord to bless what we're partaking of. And when we break the bread and drink the wine, we should understand the linking of that bread and wine to the whole story of Jesus climaxing into his death. Meaning, don't just think of it as, well, I wonder what type of juice this is and I wish we had matzah or bread, not this. You know, it's like, let's actually approach this and know he's here. He's here in this moment with me. He's communing with me. He's speaking with me. I'm speaking with him. And transformation can take place in that moment. And when Jesus gave the bread and wine, the disciples were to receive the bread and receive the wine. And in like manner, we come and we receive. Like all truly joyful things, this meal also is a solemn one, but one that carries much joy. We come into Jesus' presence here because the blood gives us access to the holy place. Don't you guys remember the story uh, of the road to Emmaus in the Gospels, right? We got Cleopas and, and probably his wife that's, they're walking from the events of Calvary and they're on this two-hour journey, the seven-mile journey to Emmaus. And they're sad and they're disappointed and this guy shows up. He's like, why are you guys so sad? And he's like, where have you? Like, have you been living under a rock? Do you not know that of the one Jesus Christ that the Romans crucified? Like, do you have no idea what's going on? Obviously, they didn't know it was Jesus in that moment that was with them. The scripture says that it was actually concealed from their eyes. And we see that they go on. He walks with them for two hours. And he begins to explain to them in depth the law and the prophets and all these things leading up to, to Christ the Messiah. Still, they don't see him. And then he inclines to them that he's going to go ahead. And it's the hour is drawing late. It's not quite evening yet. And they said, no, come, come in with us. And they were thinking they were inviting him to a meal, but they didn't realize that he was actually inviting them to a meal. And actually, let's turn there. It's Luke 24. The whole story starts in 13, but I want us to jump down 
listening. Verse 28. It says, Then they drew near to the village. This is Luke 24, verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in with him. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table, or some translations would say, as he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it, he gave thanks. He broke the bread, and then he gave it to them. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight crazy, right? Now it goes on, they, they go back on the two, they just pick up, it wasn't evening yet, uh, it was about to be evening. They pick up what they were doing, they probably just leave everything on the table and they go back to find the disciples. It's another two hour journey back. And they go back and they tell them what had happened. And in verse 35, they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And I love this. As they said that, Jesus appears again. Door was shut, locked, shows up. Don't be afraid, because they're terrified. <laughs> the door was locked because they were afraid they were gonna get killed. That's why they were locked, because they were in hiding. It's probably why those guys went to Emmaus. Like, they were gonna walk two hours, we're getting out of here. They came back, they came back at night. It's probably the middle of the night. He goes on again to teach them. He then again teaches them the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. In the same way, he taught the others on the road to Emmaus. He teaches them and their eyes are open. Do it again with Thomas, who wasn't there 10 days later. Poor Thomas. moment he took and broke the bread, they recognized him. And in that moment, they became witnesses. And they actually go out to tell. This is before the Great Commission. They go out to tell the disciples what had happened. They went to witness. this is not a meal that we are setting. This is a meal that Jesus pre prepares for us at the table. He set the table. And when the bread is broken, we are to recognize that we too are witnesses to his death and resurrection. This means the meal sends us out as witnesses. This meal is meant to send you out. There is a go to communion. There is a receiving and then there is a sending out. That's why I love the definition that the, the mass came from. And now you go and be sent out. And witnesses, they don't just tell a story. I, I think for us, we think witness, we think courtroom. And we got different people telling different accounts. But a kingdom witness was not just meant to tell the story of what happened. They are meant to go and then do the things that they saw done. Also note, the last thing he did with them was share this meal. And we have...
have this reality we see in Corinthians that Jesus appeared to Peter first, probably because Peter needed him to appear to him first. He denied him three times. But we don't know what happened. All we know is Jesus appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the other 12. But the first written account of what happened at Jesus' first appearing is him breaking the bread and taking the cup and giving it to them. And after his 40 days with them, he's gonna ascend and he says, now go into the city of Jerusalem and tarry into this, in the city until you're endued with power from on high. And what I love it is they go back for 10 days into the same upper room that they would have shared the last supper with him. Do you see the power of this meal that transitions the old covenant to the new? That is his blood and his body, this body that was spread out on a cross that we get to partake of. He's the host. We're the recipients. It's declaring that the kingdom has come. How do we know that? Because he said, I won't drink this cup again until the kingdom has come. And here we find him eating and drinking this cup with them again. That action is declaring to them, the kingdom has come. And now you go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom. How could they preach the gospel of the kingdom? Because it had just come to them in Jesus after his resurrection. And some theologians would say, not only did they return to that room, but most likely for 10 days, they would worship, they would pray together, they would wait on the Lord, and they most likely took communion. It's the first thing they did. And that communion would push them forward to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they would push them into all the world. And then they became those people that it says of the governor, oh, here comes those people who have turned the world upside down. They're coming here also. <laughs> this changes everything. Not just for your salvation, guys. It's to empower you to be witnesses. There's power at the table. There's healing at the table. There's salvation at the table. There's access to what we didn't have access to before. And so let's do this together. Let's do what Paul said. You can take any posture if you want to stand, if you want to kneel, you want to sit. There's really no signs to that part. Whatever makes you feel connected to him in this moment. I want you to take 30, 60 seconds. Just survey your ways. Just ask the Lord if there be any way in me that I don't know. You might know it already and just bring that before him. Let's take 30, 60 seconds. brings it to mind. Just ask for forgiveness. Just repent. Speak to him.
you feel the presence of the Lord here right now? He shows up and you talk about him. Paul said, the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed he took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me I like to take it I like to break it even in my hands and Lord we, we do we remember but we acknowledge your presence with us. Let's partake together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. we thank you for this cup. Thank you for the new covenant in your blood. And we thank you that this blood still works for us today. Let's partake together. And it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about when we go in an unworthy manner. But I want to turn it around when we do come in a worthy manner that he who eats and drinks eats blessing to themselves it's the opposite of judgment we get mercy we get mercy it says that many who approach are weak or sick and we approach in the right manner we get strength and we get health and we get life for if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We get mercy. In the verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. We come together in unity. And we come together in order. And Father, we thank you. Why don't you stand with me if you like? We thank you, Lord, for your blood. We thank you, Lord for understanding and for experience that you invite us and Lord we say we want to be a part of those witnesses that get sent out from this table sent out and we do thank you that this proclaims to this city there is a King Jesus who really did die and raise again and there is a King Jesus who is coming New York City and Lord I thank you that this meal and this blood it draws us near to you we get to come to the heavenly places to the place where you are. We get to abide. We get to do the John 17. Father, these whom you've given me, I desire that they would be with me where I am. For the glory you've given me, I 
give to them. <laughs> we thank you, Lord. Let's worship together. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.